Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Hi, Elise Lunan here. I'm the chief content officer over at Goop and co-host of the Goop podcast. Today, I'm sharing one of my favorite conversations from our InGoop Health Wellness Summit in L.A., But before we get to it, let's talk about something else I like, Summer Cocktails and Kettle One Botanical, who made today's episode possible. I grew up in Montana, which I know I talk about a lot. And as much as I love my Montana childhood and living in L.A. now, I do miss some things from when I lived on the East Coast, particularly the summer vibe. I don't know if you've heard, but we don't really have seasons in Los Angeles. This summer, I'll be spending some time back east and hanging at Goop's pop-up shop in Sag Harbor. It's special for a few reasons. One is that it's outfitted with a custom Chris Earl bar cart and stocked with Kettle One Botanical. We'll be hosting a few events there throughout the summer and serving some pretty goopy cocktails. Kettle One Botanical, for the uninitiated, is vodka distilled with real botanicals and made with non-GMO grain. There's no sugar and no artificial sweeteners or flavors. I'd love to share a cocktail with you in Sag Harbor, but either way, you can order your own Kettle One Botanical at drizzly.com. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like, it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations, because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Today is no exception. I'll let Elise fill you in on her extraordinary guest. All right, over to Elise. Over the past few years, we've started doing more one-on-one conversations at our wellness summits in Goop Health, and I love these intimate conversations. But some of my favorite moments are still the panels we do around different aspects of health and healing. In Los Angeles, I had a conversation with two talented doctors. I'll tell you a little bit about them before we get into it. Dr. Robin Chutkin is a renowned integrative gastroenterologist and author of Gut Bliss, The Microbiome Solution, and The Bloat Cure. 
She is the founder of the Digestive Center for Wellness in Washington, D.C., which is an integrative gastroenterology practice that incorporates microbiome analysis and nutritional counseling. And then Dr. Eva Queenar is an endocrinologist and the author of The Fatigue Solution. She's a metabolism specialist with expertise in hormone replacement, fatigue, energy, PMS, and weight gain. She's based in Los Angeles, and if you ever meet one of her patients out here, they're likely to rave. Robin, Eva, and I ended up talking a lot about the gut, bloating, what causes it, and how to deal. We talked about IBS, and they get to the bottom of things like why we can gain three pounds in a day for seemingly no reason. And we talk about fatigue and how our hormones play a huge part in it. I learned a lot and had a great time with these two in a very spirited conversation. I think what makes us as good as physicians as we are is that we do listen to our patients. And I have learned a tremendous amount of medical information and healing ways for my patients by patients bringing information to me. But I think as, as a consumer, as the patient, it's also your obligation to teach us what might be out there. So let's get into it. So I love this combination of endocrinology and gastroenterology because we were talking backstage about where sometimes when there's a mystery and someone is convinced that it's their thyroid, it ends up being their gut. So we'll get into all of that. You guys can do that dance as we go. So what are the, comp- what are the common symptoms that you both see in your practices? So bloating is one of the commonest symptoms I see. And my goal is always to sort of empower women, patients, to be a medical detective when it comes to their bloat because it's never normal. There's always a reason, right? So trying to figure out, is it the thyroid? Is it uh, bacterial overgrowth? Are you gluten intolerant? Is there fructose malabsorption? So it's a really sort of fantastic medical detective uh, process that we do to try and figure it out. And bloating is one of the ways that the gut can sort of signal it's unhappy. It's a very nonspecific symptom, but it's probably one of the commonest I see in my practice. Mm. So I'll second that. I do see a lot of bloat as well, but the bloating that I see can come from people being hypothyroid or because their estrogen is too low or their testosterone is off or their neurotransmitters aren't functioning right or their cortisol is going crazy. So there is a collaboration between gut and and hormones. Within that, with the bloat, there's also weight gain, there's insomnia, there's depression. So those are the biggest things that I see. Yeah, I would imagine you see a lot of women who just simply say, I don't feel well. I see a lot of women who have gone to their physicians and have told me, I have done every, every test in the book. And they haven't. And they were told that they're getting older or they look at more of their environmental social practices, what's going on with their husbands, what's going on with work. They don't, their primary cares typically don't take it seriously that there's something organic going on. And yet these women know what they're supposed to feel like. And that's what brings them into me. Yeah. Good health and good digestive function is our default setting. That's how it's supposed to work. I mean, not to get into too much detail, but it's supposed to be like one beautiful, bountiful bowel movement that just slides right into the bowl, (laughs) stool nirvana every day. This is what is normal. And how many of you are experiencing stool nirvana? (laughs) Raise your hands. Maybe not as many as should be. And so that is... 
that is, again, I'm always telling people, like, this is not normal. These small little stingy pebble-like stools and bloating <laughs> and brain fog and, and all of this stuff is not normal. This is not how we're supposed to be feeling. Yeah. I mean, and I think the aging question, which you brought up, is such a big factor for us as women, right? So there's this idea your fertility falls off, that you just fall off a cliff, right? Everything starts to fall apart. Is that true? Is that a medically true? I know fertility wanes, but what is aging naturally, gracefully well, supposed hormones, to look like? Our hormones do change, and our gut gets fatigued as well. And so, yes, as we get older, the thyroid, the underlying antibodies that might trigger a hypothyroid state or a hyperthyroid state, they start to get lower. Our estrogen falls. The first hormone that goes is testosterone. So you'll see a lot of women come to me and go, my marriage is falling apart because I don't want to have sex with my spouse. And it's not because they don't love their spouse. It's just you hit a certain level in your adrenals and your ovary, and that testosterone is just not being produced. They're chafed. We're all chafed, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it, it, it's a combination, but um, that, certainly, that certainly adds to it. That's why we've got the Mona Lisa laser. That's we why. have some non-toxic lube for you <laughs> in the gift shop. <laughs> there you go. My husband's in the audience going, TMI, for sure. <laughs> Definitely. There he is, right there. Yeah. <laughs> we'll embarrass. We'll embarrass. He looks happy. <laughs> oh. the, the other thing, this sort of gut hormone connection in terms of thinking about weight gain. So people will say to me all the time, I'll see perimenopausal women and they'll say, I don't understand what's going on. I haven't done anything differently and I'm gaining weight. And I'll say that's exactly why you're gaining weight because you haven't done anything differently because the metabolism changes. And mm -hmm. really when you look around, how many overweight nonagenarians and even octogenarians do you see? The people who are living long are like this big. They're tiny because it's more work for the body. So one of the things that happens is the gut is just less able to digest food. And that means you have to put fewer calories into it. So that's one of the simple things too, is realizing that as we get older and as we get perimenopausal, we really require a lot less food. And if you're still eating you know, three square meals a day, the same way when you were 25, you're gonna be bloated, you're gonna gain weight. For sure. I, I, I take a little bit of a different, agree. yeah, I mean, I, I do think I have the patient who comes in and they're like, literally, I have not eaten anything all day mm -hmm. and I just put on three pounds. And yes, those three pounds can be their bowel movement, but I also have to look at that as, as an adrenal. I have to look at that. Is it something that's stressing their body that's creating more cortisol? Is it their DHEA? Is, is it their pregnenolone? I mean, it's not just they're aging and they require less food. I think it's the, the type of food, because calories in is not calories out. It really needs to be looked at proteins and fats and carbohydrates. But, but I, I go beyond the eat less and exercise more. I really put on my Sherlock Holmes cap and go, okay, where, where's the problem? And a lot of times it is in the gut and, and we have neurotransmitter problems that go on there, or you've got, small intestinal bacterial dysbiosis or inflammatory bowel disease or something going on that, that is a reason. And all of a sudden, when you find out, it flies off and not so much about decreasing the calories.
You know, when you think about all the other systems in our body, I mean, things definitely slow down. So we make fewer digestive enzymes as we get older. So not suggesting that people who are really True. sick, you know, people who have Crohn's or ulcerative colitis, or as you mentioned, bacterial overgrowth. I mean, these are real conditions, but I'm talking about the average healthy person who as they age finds that they're gaining weight, that there is the same way the enzymatic activity is decreased, the same way cortisol is decreased, the same thing, they can tolerate fewer calories. So I agree with you. I mean, the average person who wants to lose weight, just telling them to, who's having an issue, just telling them to eat less, exercise more, may not be the end of it. But I'm just talking about healthy right. aging here. Yeah. So the studies show that per decade after the age of 30, you're supposed to decrease your caloric intake by 10%. So, and that's per decade. One of the really interesting things while we're on the obesity topic is this idea that our microbes, our microbiome, the trillions of bacteria that live in and on our bodies, mostly in our guts, can be predictive of obesity. So we can predict somebody's likelihood of being overweight with about 58% accuracy looking at their DNA, but with 95% accuracy looking at their microbiome, looking at the ratio of some of these large families. So the four large families of bacteria in humans are Formicutes, Bacteroidetes, Actinobacteria, and Proteobacteria. And the ratio of Formicutes to Bacteroidetes is particularly predictive. And so again, I can look at somebody's microbial analysis and predict with a very high likelihood whether they're overweight or not. And we can do that with newborns. And that's because whether we gain weight or not, how easily we lose weight, has probably more to do with our microbes than it does to do with our genes or anything else. So this is a sort of really fascinating area now. We can, we can take researchers at Washington University in St. Louis took microbes from identical twins, one lean, one obese, and transplanted them to germ-free mice. And the mouse who received the microbes from the obese twin gained weight without any change in diet or exercise, mm. to your point. And the microbes, the mouse who had the microbes and the lean twins stayed lean. So this was a first example of a cross species from actually human to mouse conferring weight gain. So this is a really fascinating area. And as Eva said, it's not calories in, calories out. We see that all the time. People are eating the exact same food, some gaining weight, some not. We know there's some microbes that confer thinness. And so this is, again, really exciting area. So does this mean that at... Or not even at birth, we're all getting fecal transplants on the go forward. Well, how you're born has a lot to do with this too. So babies who are born via C-section have a fourfold increase in not just obesity, but also allergies, asthma, and autoimmune disease. And that's just based on not swallowing a mouthful of microbes going through the vaginal canal and be, you know, slash coming out instead. So, you know, we're finding out all these incredible differences now, and, and that's one of them, just the differences with birth method. And do you think, does this mean that there's a promise for things like obesity, that a fecal transplant might be able to... I'm hugely optimistic about this, but it's probably more than just fecal transplant. So not just obesity, but virtually, I mean, when you think about it, our microbes are involved in every aspect of our body. Brain health, 90% of the serotonin, the feel-good hormone is made in our gut, and Eva, you'd mentioned neurotransmitters. They're not just involved in digesting food and making smelly gas. It's brain health, cardiac function, metabolic function, joint health, all of these different things. So when you think about the microbes as really being the worker bees and, and sort of they're the ones 
working away in the factory, then you, it really opens up the door for therapeutic mm -hmm. possibilities. But the problem with fecal transplants most of the time is that the bacteria don't live long enough. And so mm -hmm. we still have to figure out what to feed them. So it's not sort of a one and done. And uh, so a friend of mine called me the other day and said, I want you to find some microbes from a skinny 18-year-old and bring them down and shoot them up my butt. And I said, it doesn't, doesn't quite work that way. Yeah, don't you have to imbibe them? No, it's not <laughs> just that. You have to eat what the skinny 18-year-old is eating. Mm. So it's all about feeding our microbes. So if we think about one of my favorite bacteria, Fecalobacterium prosnitzii, That's it's my prevalent. That's favorite too. <laughs> <laughs> F. prosnitzii is my favorite because it decreases the risk of colon cancer, diabetes, heart disease, stroke. It's the most prevalent bacteria in vegans. But if you just borrow some from your vegan friend and then you're having, you know, lamb chops and potatoes all day long, the fecal bacteria prosnitzii are not going to stay around very long. So what we feed our microbes is still really the most important thing. And is there, in hormones, is there, a, is there something that's similar in the sense that not you can transplant an ideal hormonal state, but is there a version of like blank slate, 40-year-old hormonal hormones or 50-year-old, like is there an ideal that you can adjust people to? Yeah, of course there is, but everybody has a different level of that hormone. So you can have a woman who's 40 and perfect example, you know, really fertile and somebody who's already been in menopause for 10 years. So when you talk about a clean slate, nobody is coming in at the same level. Everybody's got their, their issues already. Mm -hmm. So, and it's not just, you can't just look at one, unfortunately in endocrine, it's not just one organ. Right. You, know, you have to look at it from a pituitary point of view, which is your brain or your thyroid or your parathyroids or your adrenals. I mean, it's, it's, it's literally a domino effect with hormones and aging. And it seems like it's like you're dialing all sorts you're of knobs fine -tuning. simultaneously. I compare women and men very differently. A man's hormones would be like an on-off switch, whereas a woman would be like trying to run a, a plane, a cockpit with everything just moving and everything moving, not just by age, but moving every day of the month if she's still menstruating. So it's almost easier to start from scratch when a woman has already gone through menopause to go, okay, we're not arguing with any hormones here. You know, right. we're not one day, it's not going to be an imbalance of this estrogen and progesterone and testosterone and growth hormone and cortisol. And I mean, everything's going on. And then you add the environmental stressors, you know, the workplace, the, the not being able to sleep. And then with foods, yeah, you can eat right, but where are you getting those foods from? And, you know, yeah. it, it is mm. expensive to eat well. And, and even if you think you're getting organic, it may not be organic. And so it, it becomes very complex. Yeah. Do you recommend that women, and I know this isn't customary or common, but that we all get our hormones tested starting at is there an ideal age that then you're it's trying It's not just the ideal age. It's the right timing. Yeah. For instance, if there's a woman who's overweight and she's a little bit, got more facial hair and she's thinning her hair on top of her head and she's got more difficulty getting pregnant, you know, maybe we're looking at something like polycystic ovarian syndrome or insulin resistance because they're very similar. So then you would test them at a different part of their cycle than somebody who you think is perimenopausal. So that's day right. two to four. So I'll get patients that come in to me and they'll have their blood work and their doctor will do their blood work. And I'll be like, okay, where in your cycle did you get this done? 
they don't know. Their doctors didn't ask them. They weren't interpreted that way. And so we don't know if we've got any legitimate basis of lab work to work with. I mean, it's just, right. it's haphazard. So you really have to go to somebody that understands what they're doing with hormones to do, to make that identification. And is there a, is there a basic way of, is it when you're ovulating, is there a certain time, are there certain tests? For which disease, that's right. the problem. Damn. That's the problem. Yeah. Right? It's, and do you want people to see doctors like you before there's a problem? Or is oh, absolutely. Point? Because otherwise people are putting, they're put on, for instance, Zoloft, right? If, if they're not sleeping, if they're emotional, if they've got anxiety, where they just could have been added on a little bit of progesterone, not Zoloft. And what happens with Zoloft? It puts weight on people. They did cross-sectional studies of different antidepressants, different serotonin agents. So again, it's a very complicated situation and it, it really is based on what is the history of that person that's coming in. Right. We see so much of this in medicine of medicating and not understanding what the drugs are doing. I'm glad you mentioned Zoloft. Now we know, because we didn't test before, now we know that so many of these drugs have a deleterious effect on the microbiome. And of course, a ripple effect out from an altered microbiome is, is vast. So we know, for example, Prozac is associated with resistant E. coli. And I think about all the women I've seen with urinary tract infections. We don't know why they're having these E. coli urinary tract infections. And now we know there's this association with Prozac and resistant E. coli. So, you know, anything that you take, I mean, even a prenatal vitamin ostensibly has an effect on the gut. It's metabolized through the liver, has an effect on gut bacteria. So I think we have to think not just how these things are affecting us as a macro host, but how they're affecting our 100 trillion micro hosts and how that is in turn creating disease because where does disease come from? You know, in medical school, we're really good at saying what something is. You have Crohn's, you have ulcerative colitis, you have microscopic colitis, you have hypothyroidism, but it doesn't fall from the sky. And we know that the genes are just a suggestion. In the 20 or so years since we've been able to sequence the entire human genome, how many genetic diseases have been cured? Zero, because the genes are the gun, but environment is a trigger. And so some of the things you're talking about, mm -hmm. the hormonal milieu, the microbial milieu, what's going on environmentally, the medications we're taking, the water we're drinking, the food we're eating, and where is the food coming from? And what about the soil microbes? And when are you yes. eating it? Yes, when? absolutely. You know, there's a lot of people that are doing the fast that they're not hungry in the morning, so they'll skip their breakfast and they'll grab something at lunchtime and then they'll just eat at dinner, because we're also social. That's when we get together with our family, that's when we get to together with our friends, and we're saving our calories, and we're just eating at nighttime. And that does not go well with hormones. It's, it's like, if you will, the sun and the moon and the pull of the water and the tide. We digest differently at different times of the day, not just with what we're eating. In fact, I don't know how many people know, but the GI tract has a bedtime. So the stomach contractility is tied to the light-dark cycle, the circadian rhythm. Right. And again, we're social and we love to eat at night, but that's when our GI tract literally is not moving. So if you look at something like acid reflux that affects so many people, the vast majority of people who have acid reflux can have their symptoms virtually go away by just calorie shifting. Big breakfast, bigger lunch, light dinner, and just not eating after the sun sets. But this is when we're dumping in the majority of our calories. And then there's you know, this huge industry of acid blocking drugs. 
at one point, I think the second or third most commonly prescribed drugs in the world Which after Viagra. Which causes osteoporosis. Causes osteoporosis, <laughs> causes bacterial overgrowth. We need stomach acid to digest food. So you see this ripple effect from, from some of these things. And I think our medical community, unfortunately, I think Eva, you'd agree, has done a really poor job yes. of educating people about some of these diet and lifestyle fixes, if you will. And it's sort of one big pharmaceutical band-aid all the time. Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com host. Let's take a quick break. There are a few things that define summer. For me, that's getting to the beach in Maine, eating outside, spending more time with my kids, watching fireflies, hiking, trying to slow down a bit, reading books, and mixing in novels with my usual nonfiction stack for work, a lot of earthing or walking barefoot, maybe going on a Netflix binge, catching up with friends, traveling, and making summer cocktails. If you're looking for inspiration for your next summer party, not that you need an occasion, we have a lot of fun recipes on Goop made with fan favorite Kettle One Botanical. For starters, see the Botanical Breeze and Cucumber Mint Cooler, or just grab some Fever Tree Soda and mix a Botanical Spritz. Kettle One Botanical is vodka distilled with real botanicals and made with non-GMO grain. There's no sugar and no artificial sweeteners or flavors. There are three Kettle One Botanical varietals, cucumber and mint, grapefruit and rose, and peach and orange blossom. And they all make for really fresh tasting summer cocktails. You can order Kettle One Botanical on drizzly.com to try one out yourself. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y dot com. Between this podcast, our live events, and editorial stories, we get to team up with a lot of innovative companies that are also run by and for women. Like, for example, Sunrev. A while back, we interviewed Coral Chung and Wendy Wen, the co-founders of Sunrev, for our female founders column. And this is what I learned. Sunrev is a modern, direct-to-consumer luxury handbag line. They believe, like we do at Goop, that women are multifaceted and that our choices matter. Their bags are all handmade by artisans in Florence, Italy, and sourced from the finest materials. All of their styles are 100% Italian leather and made with high-quality micro-suede interiors. But speaking of choices that matter, my summer project, or really my forever project, is streamlining my closet and paring it down to the basics and essentials. The things I know I'll wear and love forever, or at least for a long time. So I appreciate the versatility of Sunrev's Maestra bag in particular, which is really like having four bags in one. The Maestra bag can be worn like a backpack, satchel, tote, or crossbody. It's the perfect size and shape to hold your laptop, and its built-in organization system has basically already done the Marie Kondoing for you. 
which at the end of the day really means you don't have to lose your keys in the bottomless abyss. You can order your own SunRev bag at senreve.com. That's senrev.com. And you can use code GOOP to get 10% off your order for a limited time. Okay, break's over. Let's hear more from Robin and Eva. I know we talked last night too about IBS and how that's probably the most common diagnosis, but you think it's like a trash basket. I I called irritable bowel syndrome lazy doctor syndrome because if you slice up the IBS pie, you see literally dozens, if not maybe hundreds of different conditions. You see undiagnosed Crohn's and ulcerative colitis and microscopic colitis and celiac disease and gluten intolerance and parasites. In America, 33% of people, according to the Center for Disease Control, have had or will have a parasite in the US, not in Burkina Faso or you know South Sudan. Parasites, fructose malabsorption, you see all these different things, and I would include things in your neck of the woods too, probably like hypothyroidism and adrenal fatigue. And so if your healthcare practitioner is not slicing up that IBS pie and instead is just giving you a prescription, they're really doing you a disservice. And so you have to, again, be the medical detective, and this is why I love writing these books, to give people the educational tools to say, this is what might be going on, this is a test you need to do, these are the questions you need to ask. Well, you don't even have to ask your doctor for those tests because they're commercially available on the internet and they are from credible companies. So you can actually test your own stool, send it to a lab, Insurances, if you do go to a doctor, will cover them. But that's where you can really see not just do you have a parasite, but do you have an overgrowth? Are you creating enough digestive enzymes? Are you metabolizing your fat? And then you can proceed instead of just arbitrarily being put on a medicine probably for the rest of your life because your gut's not going to get any better on its own just by taking this medicine. Although I will say though that there is, it's a little bit the wild, wild west out there. I mean, there's lots of testing. Some of it is good and some of it is not. And so I think people sometimes still need a guide. And this is, I think, where people like you and I come in to help people interpret what is, I mean, if we look at something like parasitology, there are parasites like Blastocystis hominis, B. hominis, I like these names, that can actually just be a part of the normal gut flora. And so if you find that you had B. hominis, depending on the setting, getting put in on an antibiotic or an antiparasitic agent for that could potentially make you worse by killing off a lot of your healthy gut flora. So I think there's still, there's still a lot of room for interpretation and it's important, I think, to have somebody along to help you rather than just, I'm gonna test and I'm gonna take the therapies and not really clear on what's doing what. Right, but on top of that, you also have to think What's going on with your thyroid? Because constipation is like the first thing that happens when your thyroid is slow. And a lot of doctors don't know how to interpret a normal thyroid because you'll get a lab back and it'll give you a normal interval. And we've skewed that interval. It's not, you know, we're missing 80% of the population who actually have a thyroid disease. So it's, it's all about interpretation, not just getting the test, but having somebody interpret that test. I hope Elise won't mind if I ask you a question no, here. Please. Sorry, but why is thyroid disease so prevalent in women? I mean, it's like one in four women in the U.S. Well, What's going on? Well, first of all, it's, you have to divide thyroid disease into what kind of thyroid disease. So is it autoimmune? And women just tend to have more autoimmune disease for thyroid from a genetic point of view. So... 
the autoimmunity becomes alive as age goes on, all right? So that's number one. But number two, with people, let me backtrack. Years ago, when we didn't have an FDA, mm -hmm. people were getting hypothyroid because we didn't have iodine in the salt, sure. right? People yes. lived in the Midwest, they weren't getting the fish. It wasn't, the soil wasn't rich in iodine. So along the comes the belt. FDI. Well, the Himalayas are the goiter belt, but yeah, <laughs> you know. So the FDA then mandated iodine be infused in all the salt, right? Then hypertension came along and people were like, stay away from salt. So if you stay away from salt, you're gonna stay away from the iodine that's infused in that salt. And so then you have more of that environmental or nutritional hypothyroidism. Mm. So when you're saying why, those are yeah. the two biggest reasons. And so the FDA took away the iodine from salt about eight years ago. And we've seen such a surge in hypothyroidism since then. So eat more salt? Eat more iodine. So yeah. even with the salt, so people will say, well, I, I do sea salt, which has virtually no iodine. Or they'll do the Himalayan pink salt, which has virtually no iodine. You know, so, so kosher salts, virtually no iodine. The old-fashioned Morton salt has iodine in it. But even there, you can find iodine-free Morton salt. You need iodine for that thyroxine hormone for that metabolism to happen. But get then the again, I've seen salt. people do iodine drops and then they get hyperthyroid, which they love because they've got energy and they lose weight, but that's not I healthy either. <laughs> you, want, you want that balance. Right. So I love that you mentioned autoimmune disease in women. There is a, a hypothesis called a hygiene hypothesis. So in, in the 1950s in England, they were seeing this massive increase in two autoimmune diseases in particular, in hay fever and eczema in British children. And so the British government asked David Strawn, who was an epidemiologist at the London School of Tropical Medicine and Hygiene, to investigate this, to see why are we seeing massive increases in hay fever and eczema in British children. And he embarked on a 25-year study following kids from birth to age 25. And he found these two incredibly surprising factors. The first was that kids who came from large families who were sick a lot because your cousin was sneezing on you and your sister was coughing on you. So kids who were from large families who were sick a lot had very low rates of these autoimmune diseases. The second finding was even more striking. And that was that kids from more affluent households were sicker. They had more autoimmune diseases. Now remember, this is the 1950s in the UK. So at that time, affluence and hygiene were associated. One could maybe argue they're inversely associated these days, at least maybe in my household. But um, so, so the kids who were more affluent, who were bathing a lot, were sort of super sanitizing themselves. And so while this turned everything we thought we knew about how disease develops on its head. And it, it made us realize that being too clean was really a problem. I still cringe when I see these kids with a hand sanitizer hanging off the back of the knapsack. I want them to have a little sachet of dirt on the knapsack, actually. But so, so we realize that if we don't have exposure to germs early on, that this means that our immune system isn't trained. And then when our immune system encounters something simple, like our own gut bacteria, that it should be able to deal with, it overreacts. And now we have Crohn's or ulcerative colitis or one of 87 different autoimmune diseases. I agree diseases. with that, but I also think that a study that needs to be kind of paralleled with that is you can extrapolate that into breastfeeding. So those more affluent parents yes. in the 50s 
We're not breastfeeding. Yes. It wasn't the call. You had money, you bought formula. So, you know, I'm not convinced that it's all about, you know. Dirt. <laughs> I, be I believe in dirt, I, I really do. But I also believe that a lot of the autoimmune comes from not nursing. Eva, I'm so glad you mentioned that. When I was in medical school, I would see these signs in the clinic saying, breastfeed your kid to decrease their likelihood of Crohn's disease. And I remember thinking as a young medical student, that makes no sense, that's so crazy. How can breastfeeding decrease the rate of Crohn's disease, a gut disease? And it turns out they're exactly right because a third most common ingredient in breast milk is something called an HMO, human milk oligosaccharides. And human milk olig oligosaccharides are completely indigestible by babies. So why is a third most common ingredient in breast milk something that a baby can't even digest? because it's there to feed the baby's bacteria. The HMOs feed the baby's bifidobacteria, and the bifidobacteria help the baby to repel the staph on the mother's breast. So it's just this incredibly elegantly designed thing. And so again, we talked about babies who are born via C-section having four times the rates of obesity, allergies, autoimmune disease, and asthma. Babies who are not breastfed, and I think you're exactly right, that's a huge factor, particularly in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, right. where affluent women who could afford formula were not breastfeeding, and we were seeing huge increase in autoimmune disease in that more affluent group. Yeah. Are, and are there things that are effective at mitigating that for those who have to have an emergency C-section or can't breastfeed? Is that seeding? The, the, yes, I love that you mentioned vaginal seeding. So Marty Blazer, who wrote a great book called Missing Microbes, almost as, my, as good as my book, The Microbiome Solution, Marty Blazer is an infectious disease doctor and his wife came up with, who's a PhD, came up with this fantastic thing of vaginal seeding. I love it because it's low-tech and it's cheap. And it's basically just taking some gauze, obviously it doesn't have to be sterile because you're taking it and then you're soaking it down there in the perineal juices, that's the area between the vagina and the rectum, soaking it and then when the baby comes out, you just swab the baby. So you're, when, the, when you pull the baby out via C-section, so you're sort of simulating a vaginal birth. Now, as I mentioned in the birth plan in my book, make sure that your team is aware of this because they will call security. If you are giving birth to a baby in America and you start you know, putting vaginal juices all over them, they will, even your baby, they will take the baby from you and call security. So you have to make sure that your team, that the, you, know, you bring the medical community up to speed on this and let them know this is what you're doing. But it's such a low-tech convenient and, and really inexpensive way of colonizing the baby with those important founding species from, species from the mom. I just want to touch on what you said yeah. about letting your medical community know. I think what makes us as good as physicians as we are is that we do listen to our patients. And I have learned a tremendous amount of medical information and healing ways for my patients by patients bringing information to me. And if I don't know about it, I'll research it. But I think as, as a consumer, as the patient, it's also your obligation to teach us what might be out there because we get four years of medical school, three years of residency, two years of fellowships, right? And, and we can't know everything. And the world is working really fast and it's just information. And Google can be really fabulous. And it can be like hell for me as well. But, but it's also, you have to be the ones, you have to, you have to be empowered and, and lead the physician because I think I am only who I am today 
because of audiences like you. I really do. So totally second that. Yeah. Thank you for that. And I yeah, I completely agree with that. And I think it's not common enough for doctors to welcome the pushing. You know. So and I know. Well, a good doctor will always welcome it. Yeah, I agree. So I think it's essential, particularly for women who are often dismissed, to keep pushing. Right. So what's coming next in research or patient care that you guys are excited about? I think the microbiome mental health connection. I mean, we've known about the second brain and the gut, the enteric nervous system. We have five times the amount of neurons in our gut that we do in our spinal cord. So we've known about this connection in this sort of diffuse, abstract way. But the studies now, looking, we were talking last night, you can induce anxiety in mice by giving them a certain bacteria, Campylobacter, and you can treat anxiety in mice by giving them certain bacteria. So to me, the opportunities, the therapeutic opportunities for people who really struggle with depression and anxiety and even schizophrenia, obsessive compulsive disorder. So not just a therapeutic part of it, but also causatively. So what's going on in our gut that's making us depressed and anxious and having OCD? So that's a really exciting area for me as a gastroenterologist. For me, it's not what's coming up, but for me, there was a study that was done about two years ago that came out on hormone replacement therapy in women, mm -hmm. which validated the idea that bioidentical hormones, all hormones are beneficial for women without any increase in breast cancer. Because I can't tell you, no matter how many of these little studies come out, women are still petrified of going on hormone replacement therapy. And the largest study ever in the history of hormones was done at Harvard, actually Brigham and Women's, that showed that there was absolutely no rise. So I, I'm wanting to take the platform of educating what's already been identified as healthy and, and beneficial. Women lived longer, women lived healthier, and the breast issue scare for most women is, is essentially the same as not being on anything. So, and is that something that you think almost any woman of a certain age would benefit from, or what percentage I, of your practice? I do, I do. I think that for me, I actually, I shouldn't say I welcome women to be miserable when they're starting to go through menopause, <laughs> I don't. But it will trigger a woman to seek help when they can't sleep, when they can't think, when their bodies start changing for a woman to actually knock on my door and say, okay, do something. It's the woman that can go through menopause. I felt nothing, you know? I was like, I was fine, okay, well, you know, I'm not fertile anymore. But, but it's, the, it's, it's that woman that I'm more concerned about because they'll think, well, I don't need the hormones. And yet we know that estrogen helps with prevention of dementia and helps with eye disease and dental disease and bone disease and heart disease and, and yet, like I say, the study that came out really within two years has, has made us confident that we can use it without the fear of breast cancer. Is there anything that you guys, regardless of patient, feel is just excellent for anyone and everyone who comes to yeah, your practice? Yeah, I love a good probiotic for many reasons. For, uh, we're talking about women now. Yeah. Okay, yeah, I have Men had their probiotic, calcium. <laughs> I mean, there's certain stables. I don't believe in a multivitamin if you're talking about like, like nutrition. Is that what you're saying? Or No, in, in general, anything. Okay, exercise at least 30 minutes in the morning every day because if you exercise after 
then it messes up your cortisol levels and then your epinephrine, norepinephrine, serotonin, all those are gonna be um, misled. I do believe in nutrition. What do you, your... Yeah, so, I, you know, the data for probiotics is a little bit like the data for vitamins. I mean, for specific situations, certainly for traveler's diarrhea, for necrotizing enterocolitis in kids. But there's not great data that the average person benefits from a probiotic. The average person benefits greatly from three things, I think. Dirt, sweat, and vegetables. Tremendously. Tremendously. And... Um, if I could, you know, make a fancy probiotic that could heal everything that's going on in the GI tract, I certainly would have. But oh, I'm talking you can't... about for prevention of dementia and Alzheimer's because when we mentioned before, you know, Alzheimer's in <laughs> the gut, there is an association with the probiotic. There, there, there definitely is in animal studies, but there hasn't been there haven't been human studies showing that taking a probiotic can prevent this. Now these are longitudinal studies, right. so these will take a while, and. Part of the problem with people feeling like, I'll just go take a probiotic, is they don't pay as much attention to the dirt, sweat, and vegetables that can potentially be really helpful. So the same way I tell patients, listen, you can't be eating Doritos and taking a vitamin and think that you know, you're nutritionally, you're, you're set. Good. Yeah. And if you look at people who really look healthy and are healthy, it's not because they're taking a vitamin or probiotic. It's because of what they're eating and how they're living. So, you know, not to say that modern medicine doesn't offer cures and remedies, et cetera, but the basic things are still the basic things. Dirt, sweat, and vegetables. And there are probably a few others, too. Those things really go a long way. Well, when you look at telomeres, are you familiar with telomeres? I am. So I for people that don't know, so a telomere is the encoding of a DNA. It's on a chromosome, and when it gets injured, it gets unraveled, it gets shorter, it has to find its mate, and then life goes on. And death essentially happens with the shortening of that telomere. So you do have like TA65, which is a specific vitamin that can is shown, proven to elongate that telomere and therefore anti-aging. So but has a study been shown in a control population of taking it or not that they live longer, or is this just uh, it shortened the telomeres? No, it 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 elongates the telomere. Right, the, the group that didn't take it have shorter telomeres. Right. But again, that is, and this is what you know. It's just there's so much opportunity, I think, for people to be taken advantage of in some of these areas, and so I think it's so important that the science backs the stuff up. So showing, for example, that in a mouse model, giving a probiotic made the mice less anxious is not the same as you taking a probiotic and being less anxious. So I think it's still important to have these longitudinal studies in humans before we recommend that people necessarily start taking all this stuff. I think that if it doesn't hurt you, you should take it. That's like saying, well, the FDA has got something that can cause or prevent cure cystic fibrosis, but we're waiting for it. As long as something doesn't hurt you, I think it's a benefit to take it when there are some studies to show that there is a benefit. Yes, but we also need to do studies to show it's not going to hurt you. <laughs> I mean, look at GMO foods, right? I think this is over a glass of wine tonight. <laughs> I know, you guys. It, it's a GMO it argument, isn't it? It, right? is, it, it is, it is. Um, I can really watch you guys go all night. <laughs> I don't know. No, we agree with 99% no, no, of what I we know. say. We come from different perspectives of our body. Totally. Right? But, but I think that, you know, everybody's going to have a little bit of a different opinion, and that comes from experience and exposures and 
but but I just want to make it clear, no, I, I think that, that she's tremendous and we do <laughs> a great 99% of what we do. And we did not meet each other before this, so. They're best friends, though. <laughs> well, thank you, guys. Thanks for listening to my chat with Robin Chutkin and Eva Queenar. For more from Robin, check out her new online digestive wellness platform at gutbliss.com and start with her book, The Microbiome Solution. For more on Eva, you can find her at dreva.com and get a copy of her book, The Fatigue Solution. That's dreva.com. That's it for today's episode. If you have a chance, please rate and review. Hit subscribe to keep up with new episodes and pass it along to a friend who might need to listen. Thanks again for joining. I hope you'll come back this Thursday for more. And in the meantime, you can check out goop.com slash the podcast for more.